At Wildwood Community Church, we are for following Jesus together to the glory of God. We're for the church, for the community, for the nations, and for the next generation. To contact us or for more information, see our website at wildwoodchurch.org. Hey, it's great to be together with each of you here in the room. Also, those who are joining us online, it's just a privilege for us as a church family to gather. You know, this last week I was able to get together with a number of different worship leaders. Um, and one of the things that, that they shared was this perspective. It was a great one. And that was when you gather for worship and you've just spent time singing praise to God, don't say, okay, and now we're going to pray as if we have not been already communicating to the Lord in song. Our songs have an audience and that audience is God himself. And so we have been adoring him in song. And then we have the privilege of leaning in and expressing our trust to him in prayer. And now we are continuing to lean in as we look forward to hearing from him as his word is read and as we seek to connect it to our lives. But it's a privilege for us to be together as a church family and to do that together this morning. Now, if you've been with us at Wildwood the last several weeks, you know that we've been walking through a series called The Lord of New Heaven and Earth, looking at Revelation chapters 19 through 22, the last four chapters in the Bible, the last four pages in my version of the Bible that I have here in front of me. We see how things are brought to a conclusion, a a glorious conclusion. We are seeing that as we walk through these verses at this time. And we're also reminded that these verses fit inside of the book of Revelation. And throughout 2022 at Wildwood, we have been studying the book of Revelation. And we have seen that it is a revelation of who? It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And so, again, my hope and prayer today is that we see and understand more of the greatness of Christ as we look to his word to see some specific truths today. We're going to see that in part four of this current series as we look at chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. Now, as we prepare to look at these verses, I want to orient us to the subject matter. And the subject matter today really is the subject matter of hell. Now, I I tell you that up front in case you think you're in the wrong place and you want to get out, now is your time. Um, because that's often what we want to do with the topic of hell, isn't it? We want to avoid it. We want to minimize it. We want to run away from it. But one of the things that I think is interesting to me is that God wants us to consider it. God wants us to think about it. God wants us to meditate on the, the significance of hell. Jesus actually spoke more about hell than he did of heaven. And it wasn't because he relished hell, it was because he wanted to warn us of its reality. And so I I want us to, to look at it in depth today. But if we're honest, often what we do with hell is we have coping strategies. When the topic of hell comes up, we, we want to cope with it in different ways. One of the ways we cope with hell is we, we make it a joke. We think of hell as some kind of a, of a cave that is lit by bonfires and is run by a down-on-his-luck demon with a pot belly and a pitchfork. We make fun of it. That's what pop culture does. And it's a way that we might, might cope with it or, or deal with it or categorize it. That's what we do with the topic of hell. Or we, we do something like this. We, we want to make it temporary. Rob Bell in his book Love Wins a number of years ago tried to do just that. Take the awfulness of hell and dismiss it as only a temporary location that ultimately everyone will leave hell and will be saved. 
That was his argument. It was, it was a coping mechanism, not grounded in biblical truth, but was a coping mechanism. Or we want to make it ultra-selective. In other words, we, we make hell more tolerable for us if the only people who are there are people like Hitler and Stalin. If Hitler and Stalin are the only two people in hell, then suddenly we think that it's going to be okay. But what does the Scripture say? Scripture doesn't give us the freedom to be so ultra-selective on the subject. Or we just make hell a fantasy. We just make it not a real place, but kind of the subject of a parable, a life lesson that we are to learn. Jesus invented it just in, in his words, not as a real location, but he invented it just as an, a concept to scare us straight in some way. See, these are the, the coping mechanisms that we as people employ to try to sleep easier at night with a place called hell. But I don't want us to just look to each other. I don't want us this morning to just look to each other and say, how do you deal with this? And we come up with some coping mechanisms that do one of these things or some others just so that we can sleep easier at night. Instead, I want us to do this. I want us to ask the question, what does Jesus say about hell? And what has he communicated about hell? And how might that influence our lives today? We're going to see that today by looking at a central passage in God's word on the subject of hell in Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. I want to read those verses for us, and then we'll back up and make a couple of observations to help understand the topic more and how we might respond to it. So, Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11, says this. It says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. And from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire, that is, the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we have these few verses here at the end of chapter 20. Now this morning, I want us to see two big ideas from these verses that will help us make some sense of it. The first idea is this. It's really a question. Are you ready for judgment day? Are you ready for judgment day? These verses describe a day when humanity will be judged. My question to you is really the question that is leaping out to us from these pages. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready for judgment day? Well, in order to make sense of this, I want to back up and just place these verses in the overall context of the scripture as well as the book of Revelation. This may be your first Sunday here, and so you're wondering how these pieces fit. Let, let me try to paint a little bit of a picture for you. At the beginning of the scripture, we find out that God created the world. He created the world, he created the heavens, and he created you and me. He created us in his image to relate to him and to give him glory. But then we send. Genesis chapter 3 talks about how Adam and Eve sinned, but that pattern is something that we have repeated. And even as we have inherited a sinful disposition from them, we also have committed sins in what we think and what we do and how we act. 
things we don't do, we omit, and the things that we do, the things we commit. We are sinful people. And so that has created a disruption in the fellowship that we have with God. And God, aware of this, has a plan to save us from that disruption and to reconcile us to himself. And that plan is found in his son, Jesus Christ who came to this earth, as Mark chapter 10, 45 tells us in Jesus' own words, to seek and to save the lost, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to offer his life on the cross, to pay the penalty that our sins deserve so that we might be reconciled to him. And this debt that he paid is something that is available to all who would receive him. In John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, Jesus, uh, it, it is said of Jesus that to as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be children of God, even to those who have believed in his name. And so Jesus offered his life to pay the ransom for our sins, and any who have received him, any who are believing in him, have inherited a role of son or daughter of God and are the recipients of everlasting life. That's what we see inside of Scripture. Now, Jesus, after giving his life as that ransom and being raised from the dead, Jesus ascended into heaven. And when he ascended, he promised to one day return. Now, right now, we live in an era that is after Jesus' ascension and before he has come back. And so what is happening right now? Well, right now, what is happening is that Jesus, the resurrected and risen Savior, is working through his church. He's working through you and me in this era, in this time, to bear witness to the work of Christ among all nations so that people might hear of the gospel and might turn to God, repent of their sins, trust in Christ, and also be a recipient of eternal life. And one day... Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, he will establish his kingdom on the earth. And these are the verses we have seen most recently in our study at the end of chapter 19 in the first part of chapter 20 of Revelation. So that's what we've seen so far. But I want to go one step further. What happened after Jesus' kingdom? Well, after Jesus' kingdom, he judged Satan. He takes Satan and he says, Satan, I am done with you. You you are done misleading and disrupting and negatively impacting people. And Jesus judges Satan at the end of verse 7 to 10 of chapter 20 by casting him into hell. And then after that, we have this pregnant moment where all of creation is awaiting the establishment of a new heaven and a new earth. And friends, this moment where Satan has been judged, the kingdom reign of Christ is done with its thousand years, and we are awaiting what is next. That's the moment that we see happening in chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. So let's look more at those verses. What happens in that moment? Well, what happens in that moment is that there is a judgment seat and a judge that becomes clear. These verses describe it this way. John looks and he he sees a great white throne and him who is seated on it. 
in, in this, this moment at the end of the kingdom and before the new heaven and the new earth, a throne is established for judgment. Now, it's interesting to note this first word here, A. There is a single throne that is in view here. Now, that's significant because a little earlier when Jesus established his earthly kingdom reign for a thousand years earlier in chapter 20, there were many thrones that were set up for many to reign with Christ upon the earth. But in this moment of the end, there is a single throne. There is only one who will sit in sovereign judgment over the earth. And I think that's a really important and significant thing for us to remember as followers of Christ. You see, when we think of the judgment of humanity, sometimes we want to judge others. Has that ever happened to you? Is that ever a temptation for you? And you might have even justified that, saying, well, I want to judge others. I want to judge the eternal soul of another. I want to tell you where that person is going to spend eternity because they have hurt me or they have upset me or, or whatever it might be. But when it comes the time for humanity to really be judged, Jesus is not going to ask our opinion. There is one throne and one who is seated on it who will bring judgment to the earth. This throne is said to be great. It's a great throne because it sits high and exalted over all things. There is no higher authority. There is no higher court. There is no one to appeal to. This is the the one who sits sovereign over all. And he sits on a white throne. This is the, the idea of holiness. The judgments that come from this throne are just and right and good. Friends, this is why it's great that we're not the ones doing the judging. Our judgments sometimes are flawed and broken and swayed by popular opinion. But on this day, there is one who is going to make judgments and every judgment that is made is going to be right and just and good. And it will be presided over by the one who sits on the throne, which is God himself. So this is a picture of judgment's place and the judge who is going to judge the world. Now, what's interesting is there's a description about this moment. When the judge sits on this great white throne, it says that the earth and the sky flee away. The earth and the sky flee away. Now, what is that all about? What's going on with that description? Well, I think at least a couple of things are going on. One of the things that's going on is I think that in this moment, when earth and sky fly away, there is no place to hide. No place to hide. We see this in 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, where it says that at this moment, heaven and earth will pass away so that all of our deeds might be exposed. This is significant because that's what we want to do with our sin, isn't it? It goes all the way back to when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, what did they do in chapter 3? They, they hid from each other. They sewed fig leaves together and they hid from each other. But not only that, they also hid from God. That's what happens. They hid from God in the bushes as if the bushes could save them from a God who created the bush. But when it comes time for the final judgment, there will be no place to hide. You can imagine at the end of the kingdom, at the end of this time, God takes the throne and he says, enough. And all of everything passes away with the exception of humanity left exposed before a holy God. Nowhere to hide. 
Not only that, but 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 to 13 continues and talks about this world that we know burning away. And it burns away, friends, in preparation for what God will replace it with. What's coming is a new heaven and a new earth. We're going to see that in chapter 21 and 22. And so before the new heaven and the new earth can be established, what is old must be done away with. And that's what we see happening in this moment. The world we know of passes away and humanity is left standing naked before God. Now, who is judged? Who is judged in this moment? Well, not Christians. Not Christians. Now, you might be sitting there and wanting to roll your eyes in this moment as if to say, that is really convenient, pastor. It's really convenient for you to somehow dial yourself out of this. You who have grown up in a world where Jesus was freely preached and there's churches on every corner, how dare you have such arrogance to say that somehow we will escape this judgment? And as much as I would love to tell you that I've just just made this up myself, uh, because I would be tempted to do so, my reason for believing we will not be judged this day has nothing to do with my desire. It has everything to do with what I see in the Scripture. Because what we see in the Scripture is that Christians, those who have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, are not the ones judged on this day. Why do we think that? Well, first of all, the Christians who are on the earth leading up to the time of Jesus' return are raptured out of the church. We've seen that in our study, in, or out of, the, out of the world. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, Jesus comes in the sky and gathers his church together with him before the judgment begins upon the earth. And as he gathers us there, we get to return to the earth with Jesus and reign with him. And those are the ones who are the recipients of what he calls the first resurrection. So what we see happening in the judgment of chapter 20, verses 11 to 15, is associated with a second resurrection with those who don't know Christ. Those who have trusted in Christ experience the first resurrection, and they return to reign with him. Those who have rejected Christ stand before him on this day. Now, friends, to be clear, the Scripture also says that all of us will stand before God one day, and all of us will give an account for our lives before God. And so even Christians will stand before God that day on, on, on one day, but not on this day, because this day of judgment at the great white throne is the time of judgment for those who have rejected Christ. This is also something that is clear even from the words of Jesus himself, who says in John chapter 5, verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So if it's not Christians who are present, who is it? Well, it's all non-Christians. Not some, but all. We know this because he says he saw the dead, great and small. Those who were famous, those who are not so famous. Those who had done a lot of things that we would deem as awful and those who had committed less sins. All are standing before the throne on that day. And not only will they stand before the throne, but, but they will be gathered there in some form of a body which will be attached to their soul again, their physical matter 
whether they were buried at sea or in the grave, will be united together and they stand before God with no place to hide. And it will be there that they receive judgment. Now, on what are they judged? What is the standard by which they will be judged on that day? Well, Revelation 20, 12 tells us the dead will be judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. So as the king sits on the throne, books are open. Well, what is in the books? Well, it seems what is in the books is what we have done. There are records of our lives, not just some of us, but all of us. If we are not in Christ, our lives will be looked at in detail. And all of the sins that we have committed will be known and judged in that moment. Beside our name, they will be listed out. That will be the basis of the judgment that is to come. And as those things are mentioned and referenced, we need to understand what they will be measured against. Our actions are measured against what? Well, they're measured against, Jesus tells us in John 12, him his perfection, his righteousness, and his word. Jesus says in John 12, 48, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. Jesus and his revelation is the standard by which humanity will be judged. How we respond to Christ will be the ultimate measure of the judgment on that day. How we stack up against his righteousness will be the standard by which we are held to account. Now, that's why Romans 3.23 can confidently say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. If the standard is God's glory, if the standard is Jesus' righteousness, none of us stack up. And so if we are not in Christ on that day, the book will be opened, our sin will be known, and it will be compared to the righteousness of Christ, and it will be found wanting, and there will be nowhere to hide. And each of us would have to give an account. Now, are there any who escape judgment on that day? Well, the answer to that is yes. Those whose names are written in the book of life. If their name is found in the book of life, they will not be thrown into the lake of fire. So how do we get our names in the book of life? That seems really significant, right? That's an important detail. How do we avoid eternal judgment? We must find our names in the book of life. So what do we know about this book of life? Well, we know a few things about it. One of the things we know about the book of life is that it is described as the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb's book of life. Who's the Lamb? Who's the Lamb? Seriously, who is it? It's Jesus, right? It is Jesus' book of life. It's his book. It's not Allah's book. It's not the Hindu book. It's not the good old boy book. It's the Lamb's book. The way that we experience salvation, the way that we avoid judgment on that day is that we find our name in the Lamb's book. So whose names are found in the Lamb's book? Well, Philippians chapter 4 and verse 3 tells us, it is the names of all of those who are saved. 
all of those who have placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ find our names written in this book. Now, friends, you, you wonder, like, what, what book are, are our names written in? You know, sometimes we get a newspaper or we get a yearbook. You remember the emotion when you were in high school? You got a yearbook and you looked to see where your name was in it, or was I the only one, right? You looked to see where you were. You want your name recorded. You want your, your activities chronicled in some way. So it's, it's interesting to, to think about where our name is written. You realize if, your na- if you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, I know where your name is written. It may never appear in the Norman transcript. It may never appear in the Oklahoman. But if you have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, your name is written in the book of life. And on that day when it is opened, your name will appear there. Now, once your name is in this book, it is never to be removed. We saw this earlier in Revelation chapter 3, verse 5. The names that are written in this book are never to be removed. If you have trusted in Christ, your name is in that book, and it is in there forever. Your salvation is secure. But I want us to think about something really significant, and that is what I would like to call Jesus' work exchange program. What is the basis of judgment? They will judge on the basis of what they have done. That's what the passage says. We'll be judged on the basis of what we have done. Either our name will be found in a book beside our name where we will give an account for our works or our name is in the book of life. Well, whose book is it? It's Jesus' book. And so if we have trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins, we find our name written in his book so that when God goes to judge us, he will look at our name and he sees what Christ has done. And it's the righteous life of Christ that will be credited to our account. We're saved not just because Jesus paid the penalty for our sins, friends. We are also saved because Jesus' righteousness is credited to us. This is what we see in 2 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Friends, there's nowhere to hide on our own. But in Christ, but in Christ, his righteousness is enough to save. Now, for those that reject Christ and for those that stand convicted of their own sin on that day, what is the sentence that is pronounced? Well, the sentence that is pronounced is that they will be cast into the lake of fire. Now, the the lake of fire is a a picture of what we would classically think of as hell. At this point in history, it's interesting, at this point in Revelation 20, there are only three residents of hell. Sometimes we think hell is the place where all who have rejected God currently reside. That's not true. Right now, at this point in time, in this era, the lake of fire has a population of zero. The first two that go to hell are seen at the end of chapter 19. It's the Antichrist and the false prophet. The third that is sentenced to hell is Satan at chapter 20, verses 7 to 10. So where are the rest of the unsaved dead? Well, their, their spirits and their bodies are in these locations called death and Hades, temporary holding places 
where they are held awaiting this day of judgment. After they are reunited with a body and they are standing before God, death in Hades is going to be cast into hell as well. Why? Because there's no longer a need for a temporary holding location. Once this judgment is done, everyone will either enter the kingdom, if our name is in the book of life, will enter the new heaven and the new earth, or they will be cast to the lake of fire. It's a permanent location. Now, what do we do with this? What do we do with this? Well, a few things I want to mention. First thing I want to mention is this. We need to remember that judgment is coming. We need to remember that judgment is coming. Why is it that Jesus talked about this? Jesus talked about it because he knew what was coming. And as someone who loved us and desired for us to be reconciled to him, Jesus talked about this so that we might repent of our sin while we have time. Judgment is coming. Second thing that we need to consider is that we will all spend eternity someplace. We're all going to spend eternity someplace. This life is not the only life that we will live. When this life is over, and it will be over for all of us at some point, we will spend eternity someplace. If we believe in Jesus, our name is in the book of life, and we will experience eternal life in paradise. But if we have rejected Jesus, then we will be headed towards an eternal death in hell. And so the question I have for us is, what will you choose? What will you choose? Are you ready for judgment day? Have you made a response to this message? Well, I've walked through these details and painted a picture of what the Scripture teaches about the reality of hell and judgment that is to come. But I don't want us to just kick this around in our heads I want us to to think about how we might actually respond, each of us, to this message. And so I want to ask you another question. And that question is this. Are you moved by this revelation? Are you moved by it? And if you are properly moved by this revelation, friends, I think it will lead to at least four different responses to this message. So what are those responses? The first one is this. Are you moved to faith? Are you moved to faith? Are you moved to trust Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Hebrews chapter 9 verse 27 says this, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Jesus has warned us that judgment is coming. But he also died for us, giving us an opportunity to escape that judgment and spend eternity in paradise with him. And if we properly understand these verses, we would respond in faith in Christ. I love what Jesus says in John chapter 3. John 3.16 may be the most famous verse in our Bibles. Uh, how many of you, just curiosity, how many of you are aware of John 3.16? Many of you, a lot of you watch golf on TV. It's held up in signs behind the tee shot. Listen to what this verse says after that statement. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came so that we might learn of the coming judgment and might trust in his provision so that we might be saved while we have time. 
That's his desire. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Now, I believe in this room there are many who have already made the decision to trust Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. You have already repented of sin. You have already leaned in. You have placed your faith and trust in Christ, and your name is written in the book of life. But I also believe there are people in this room and people listening and watching to this message online who have never placed your faith and trust in Christ. And today in this moment, you're feeling naked and alone in front of a holy God. Friends, if that is you, I want you to know that you are a whoever. And maybe you're here today or you're listening in this moment for the express purpose because God desires that you not be condemned but be saved. And this message is laid out before you so that you might turn and lean into Christ and trust him for the forgiveness of your sins so that you might be saved. Now, I want to give you an opportunity to express that faith. And I want you to know, um, I'm going to pray in just a moment. And, And I often pray at the end of the message. And so some of you, when I pray, that's like Pavlov's dog. You start gathering up your books and you're ready to go. Don't do that. Don't do that. There's more coming. Um, but, but I, I want us all to just take a moment to pray. And if you have never placed your faith and trust in Christ, you can pray right along with me right now and express your heart's desire of trusting in Christ and what he has done. Be your rescuer from sin and judgment. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you for coming into this world, for dying on the cross to pay the penalty for our sins, for living a perfect life and offering that perfection as a cover and a cloak for us and all who are written in your book. Lord, may any who are here today who have never placed their faith and trust in you, that right now in this moment, you might stir their hearts to turn from their ways and trust solely in you, that they might find the hope and the freedom that is found only in Christ. May we all hide ourselves in you. There is no place else we can go. In Jesus' name, amen. So one of the responses is that we are moved to faith. But there's a second response, a second way that we might be moved, and that is moved to thankfulness. Moved to thankfulness. Friends, in light of this, When we say that Jesus is our Savior, or we say that Jesus has saved us, we are not saying that Jesus gave us a little better mission statement or purpose statement for our lives. We are saying that Jesus has rescued us from the fire of hell. That knowledge ought to well up within us a sense of thankfulness that we regularly express to him. The scripture is full of these kinds of responses in our New Testament, Verses like 2 Timothy chapter 4.18, where Paul says, The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul is leaning into Christ and celebrating his salvation on a regular basis. And so my question to you is, when was the last time you really expressed from the depths of your heart a thankfulness for what God has done for you? whether you have been saved for years or you have been saved for about two minutes. May you, let's just bow and express our thankfulness to God. Lord Jesus, thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you for dying for us, 
setting us free from judgment. Thank you for offering us paradise and eternity. May we live our lives always with a sense of thankfulness at your great provision. To you be all glory forever and ever. Amen. So we are moved to faith. We should be moved to thankfulness. But a third way we should be moved, friends, is we should be moved to action. We should be moved to action. How could we be aware of what is to come and keep the life-saving message of the gospel to ourselves? I mean, there are people all over the earth who are living in cultures and environments with no access to the gospel. We who have been saved, who are aware of this, part of the message of the gospel should compel us to go and to proclaim this message among the peoples of the earth, including those who live in proximity to us who don't know Christ in our world. I love what Paul says in Romans 10. He says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach good news. Friends, we are to proclaim this message. We are to organize as a church and to take the gospel down the street and around the world. Who is it that God might place on your heart to reach down your street? And who is it that God might place on your heart to pray for on the other side of the world? I love also the action response of 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11. We don't have time to get into that today, but Paul also says, in light of what is to coming, in light of the fact that, that this world is going to pass away, may we live now a life of holiness and godliness as we respond with action to this message. But a fourth response, a fourth way that we should be moved is this. We should be moved to tears. We should be moved to tears. Friends, there is a world around us that has rejected Christ and is awaiting judgment. Rather than us looking down our noses at it and snarkily commenting on social media, when was the last time your heart was broken over expressions of the rejection of our God, knowing the consequences for the individual who has rejected him. Pictures and, and reminders of this come in the highest forms. Jesus himself, as he heads towards Jerusalem, knowing that that city was rejecting him and would reject him. He sees the city in the midst of his triumphal entry. And what does he do? And when Jesus drew near and he saw the city of Jerusalem, the city that would reject him, the people that would crucify him, he wept over it saying, would that you, even you had known on this day, the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. Jesus wept over the sinfulness, knowing the consequences that they would lead to. For them, not for him, for them. And Paul, in Romans chapter 9, verses 2 and 3, made this statement about his fellow countrymen who had rejected Christ. He says, that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul was broken and brought to tears by the rejection of Christ by his countrymen. Friends, our emotions should be moved. The, the, the issue of hell should not be one of our haughtiness 
We don't escape it because we have lived a great life. We escaped it because God has given us grace in Christ. But that message of grace in Christ is one that we are to proclaim. And part of the motivation to proclaim it is because our heart is truly broken for the lost in this world. My question is, are you moved by this revelation? Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I pray that we might be moved by the knowledge of the judgment that is to come. Lord, that that we might be a people, not just to have a greater intellectual understanding of the judgment that is to come, but a people who have properly ordered it and understood the implications of it for ourselves and others, not only clinging to you for salvation ourselves, but also having our lives given a priority because of what the mission that you have given us in this present age. Lord Jesus, may we be moved to follow you in light of this revelation today. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.